Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that our kingdom is not of this earth, but it's your kingdom. We're grateful that we have no king but Christ, no sovereign but you. And today as we bend the knee at um, Romans 9, we pray that you would give us understanding for such an important text. And we, we ask that you would help us to know how we ought to live in light of what this passage says, in light of um, the kind of people that you want us to be. So thank you that the Bible speaks to where we live and the challenges that we face. And so we want to walk humbly and righteously and listen carefully to what you have to say to us today from Romans 9. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bible if you're not already there and let's go over to Romans 9. In our staff meeting this last week, our leadership team, we were rejoicing over the way in which the Lord put last Sunday together so quickly. As you may or may not know, I was not here last week. I was ill and um, was on my back for three days with a very difficult virus and sinus infection. And we were just rejoicing that in a few days the Lord helped to put together the, the, the message through Pastor Andrew and just the entire service. And as we were giving Andrew some feedback on his sermon, uh, one of the brothers said, you know, all that said, it, it was kind of nice to be in Hebrews last week. It felt good to breathe again. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and I think we all agreed. I laughed. I agreed. Yeah, it was kind of nice to be able to breathe and take a pause. Because the, the chapter that we're dealing with in Romans 9 is heavy. And if this is your first Sunday with us, you, you're, you're in the middle of one of the more challenging passages, maybe even the most challenging passages um, in the entire New Testament um, the section of scripture is heavy, it's challenging, it's hard. There are glorious and weighty truths in this passage, and at the same time, th this text creates as many questions as it answers. And yet, there's something really important for us to think through as we make our way through this passage. And, and namely, what it is to think through is that when we talk about God's sovereignty, we have to wrestle with the things that God does and then how that intersects with our own experience of our conversion, how we came to faith in Christ, our understanding of who God is and even our understanding of who we are. And Romans 9 just really lays that in front of us very clearly. So there are great truths in Romans 9, but there are also admittedly a number of tensions that we have to manage and we'll see some of those today. I want to remind you where we have been in this great book. We began Romans 9 by giving you, I gave you four pastoral admonitions, and you probably heard them at the beginning of Romans 9, but you need them today um, in a way that you may not even, even needed them in the beginning of Romans 9. Here are those four pastoral admonitions. Remember, first and foremost, that the God of Romans 8 is also the God of Romans 9. So you need both chapters in order to form a full view of who and what God is. Secondly, allow the Bible to shape and reshape your vision of God. Part of the challenge of this text is that it challenges some fundamental presuppositions that we have about the way that life works. And this text helps to maybe reform some of those understandings and to reshape even our vision of who and what God is. Third, be sure that you embrace the tension of hard texts. Not everything in the Bible is easy and God is intended for it to be that way. And there are texts that you can't reconcile very well and instead of 
denying that or being frustrated with that, embrace the fact that, yeah, there are hard tensions in the Bible. And finally, take the long view. This is the fourth thing. Take the long view when it comes to deep and challenging truths in the Bible. I I see things in the scriptures now differently at age 44 than I did when I was 24. And I've been in a journey of understanding what the Bible is saying, how it works out, and we're all in that journey. You may have never studied Romans 9 before. You may have never heard some of the things that I'm talking about, and they may be new. And I would just encourage you, allow some time to be able to think and pray through what it is that the scriptures seem to be saying, and be patient with one another, and be patient with yourself as we wrestle with these important and yet challenging truths. Secondly, let me remind you why we're talking about all of this and what Romans 9 is all about. This particular chapter is written because Paul anticipates that after hearing all of the beautiful promises in Romans 8, that someone might raise the objection, wait a minute, if all of these promises are true in Romans 8, then what about all the promises made to Israel about her spiritual ascendancy and how she would be a light to the nations? I mean, after all, Israel as a nation not only rejected her Messiah, she killed her Messiah, and now she's cut off from the people of God. So if the promises of God to Israel have not come true, then how do we know that the promises of God in Romans 8 are going to come true? And that's a great and yet hard question. Paul's argument went like this. First, God's promises are still being fulfilled, but to a remnant within Israel. And that remnant has been chosen by divine election, that God has preserved a people within his people. He set his love on those people, and although the whole nation has rejected their Messiah, there still are some within that nation who have received Christ as their Savior. Meaning that God therefore secures his promises to Israel and thereby to all of us through Romans 8, He secures those promises by his grace and not by any condition in mankind. In other words, it's God who fulfills his promises based upon his will as God, not upon the obedience or disobedience of his people. Fourth, God is not unfair in securing his promises this way. Fifth, he is free to be merciful, according to Romans chapter 9, and he is free to harden whomever he wills because he is God. And we saw this two weeks that, therefore, the ultimate value in the universe is the glory of God. And anything that fits to display the glory and the beauty of God is that which is truly right and truly lovely. And therefore, fairness, as we define it, and security, as we would understand it, are conditional on who God is as God. In other words, underneath our definitions of security and fairness is God's commitment to his own name, his own glory, his own fame, so that fairness and security of God's promises are rooted in him being God. It's rooted in his godness. And we saw this most clearly in verses 17 and 18 of Romans 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So the main point to review that we saw two weeks ago was that the glory of God or the proclamation of his name in all the earth is more foundational 
then our assessment of what is truly right, of our assessment what is truly fair or what is truly just. It is not that God is unrighteous or that he's unfair or that he's unjust. He he is all righteous. He is always fair. He is always just. The issue is our ability to correctly assess his rightness, his fairness, and his justice. And that's why I used two weeks ago the illustration of an eight-year-old crying foul because he or she is not able to stay up as late as their siblings are able to stay up. And every parent in this room has dealt with this issue. Every child, at some level, has complained, how come I have to go to bed? And from a child's perspective, it seems unbelievably unfair. And it is, (laughs) unless you're a parent. And you understand the landscape of what it means to go to bed as an eight-year-old child and why children might be allowed to stay up later when they're older. All of that to say that there are times in life when one's definition of fair is skewed by the limits of what they are able to see or understand. As I've thought about this, there's another angle that I want to share with you. It seems to me that as human beings, we all have built within us a, a way that we see life, a way that we make sense of the world. Um, a way that we just think the world should operate. It should operate like this. And as I've talked to people and as I've thought about my own life and my own struggles with God's purposes, here are, I think, just fundamental commitments that we just have as human beings. And it's this. We think life should be fair, I should be free to choose my own destiny, and I need to be able to make sense of my life. I I think that as human beings, those three things, that's like, those are like fundamental human presuppositions. Whether you're young or old, I think that's basically how we view life. And at one level, each of those statements are fundamentally true and they're Christian. That life should be fair and you should be able to choose your own destiny and you need to be able to make sense of your life. But here's the thing, according to Romans 9, while those things are true and vital elements of our humanity, Romans 9 shows us that those things are not ultimately true and there's something underneath even those ideals. There's something more foundational than our understanding of our freedom, our understanding of fairness, and our understanding of how life works. And what lies underneath according to Romans 9, is God's freedom as God. What lies underneath are divine purposes beyond human comprehension. This is really important and why some people really struggle when they encounter suffering. Because all their life they think, it should be fair and this isn't fair. I should be able to choose my own destiny and I can't because something comes into my life that I can't control and I gotta be able to make sense of it and because they can't, suddenly now they, they find themselves angry, embittered with God and they can't deal with suffering because everything has to make sense to them and you don't suffer well when there's a gap between your abilities to understand and the reality of where your life is. Some of you may be here today with that kind of mindset and frame of reference, and I hope that Romans 9 will just help you to maybe find a new paradigm, how to think about suffering, and then also how to think about God and even salvation. Romans 9 now poses another question to us. With all of that as background, 
And the question emerges in verse 19. This is the third question that we have heard. The, the first question was an implied question in verses 1 to 13, where Paul anticipates someone asking about Israel's unbelief. The second question is found in verse 14, where it says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And the title of my message that week was, is election unfair? The third question now comes in verse 19, and the question is this, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? You see, Paul knows human beings, he knows the kind of questions that we would ask. He knows the kind of challenges that we're going to struggle with when we hear that God can have mercy on whomever he wills and he can harden whomever he wills. And so he puts this question front and center. And let me just bluntly state what the question is. It's this, if God's sovereignty means that he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills, then how can God still find fault with anyone since it all depends on him? That's the question. It's a good one. That's, to me, that's the plain reading of the text. The, the, the question is an uncomfortable one, but I don't know how you read that question in verse 19 any other way. And what Paul then does is he gives three answers to that really good but really hard question. And here's the first one. The first answer, and I think it's the most important answer, is this, that God is God. It's not that he ducked the question, it's not that he didn't answer the question. No, he answers the question. He answers it in a way that highlights for us the categorical difference between who we are and who God is. Let's look at this, verse 20. Paul says, who are you, O man, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? There's a number of things to notice in this text. First, the tone of the answer that Paul gives, but who are you, O oh man? The tone indicates that the question being asked is not asked by one who is just merely seeking a humble honest answer, but rather someone who is upset and kind of getting into God's grill. I mean, you, as a parent, you've seen this. Back to the eight-year-old. You know that when your eight-year-old son or daughter asks about, let's just change the age. Shall I do that? You poor eight-year-olds. You're getting just whooped, right? So <laughs> when a nine-year-old, okay, how about that? <laughs> when your nine-year-old son or daughter complains about not going to bed, that complaint doesn't often sound like this. Mom and Dad, <laughs> I understand your great wisdom and your understanding of all things in life, but I'm just wondering if you could explain to me why I need to not go, why I can't stay up. And, and Mom and Dad, what is the, the presupposition behind this, this decision that you've made? Most children do not ask the question that way. Instead, they say, why can't I stay up? All my other friends get to stay up. You've heard this one? All the kids in the world get to stay up. And you're crazy parents, and I don't even like you. I wish you weren't my parents. You're mean, mean, mean. And at that point, you call in a timeout. And you're reminding your nine-year-old son or daughter that you're a parent. 
And eventually the argument stops because presuppositions aside, a nine-year-old doesn't really know what is in his or her best interest. And eventually the conversation, if it devolves to a certain point, that the end-all be-all answer is, honey, I'm your parent, I'm your dad, and you need to go to bed because I've said so. That at the end of the day, the appeal to the categorical difference between a child and a parent is where the decision eventually rests. And so what Paul is doing here is addressing the kind of tone that someone says to God, what are you doing? You're unfair. You're treating me unkindly. The idea is not a a humble wrestling with God's purposes. It's somebody who is ticked off and challenging God's authority and getting in God's grill saying, why are you like you are? You have no right to do this to me. That's the tone. That's why Paul says, but who are you, oh man? Secondly, he uses a metaphor in order to make this more vibrant, and the metaphor is one of a potter and a clay. He uses a familiar example, potter and clay, to highlight God's freedom to do whatever he pleases. He says, has the potter no right over the clay in verse 21? Paul's identifying is that as the potter, he has complete authority over the clay. He is able to make vessels that have differing purposes. Back to what we saw two weeks ago, God was free to create Jacob and set his love on him. He was free to create Pharaoh and not set his love on him. And what the potter and clay analogy is meant to do is in the middle of the tension of what I've just said, of God setting his love on one and not on another to remind you who God is and who we are. He uses the potter and clay analogy so that we keep in the forefront of our minds the reality of who God is and the reality of who we are. Now, there are numerous texts in the Old Testament that make reference to the potter and the clay. There's Jeremiah 18, where God is talking about his authority over the nation of Judah and calling them to repent. Isaiah 29, 16 is another one where Judah has rebelled against God's rule in their life. And as a result, listen to what God says in Isaiah 29, 16. It says this, you turn things upside down. That's really important. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. So the idea is, is that the potter clay analogy is meant to identify that there are times that we get things completely upside down. There's, there's not a specific text that Romans 9 is quoting in the Old Testament. Rather, what he is doing, what Paul is doing, is identifying the categorical difference between the creator and the creature. He's identifying that we are very quick in our accusations of God to forget who it is that we are dealing with. So just for a moment, try to see things, if you can, from God's perspective. Let the Bible inform your understanding of who we are. The Bible tells us that human beings have fallen short of God's glory. If you're not a follower of Jesus or you're trying to figure out the claims of Christ, maybe you haven't been to church in a while, what that means is this, that human beings have fundamentally decided that who God is and his rule in our life is something that we don't want, and instead we choose our own rules. Even though we know what we're supposed to do, we choose to do something different. 
And, and as a result, the Bible tells us that we exchange the glory of God for our own glory or a glory that we can manage or control or create. That's why your job can become your God, because you get all of your affirmation and your approval from your job or what people think of you or money or sex or power. These things that you create or that you get, they, they then give you what you really long for. And the fact of the matter is, is that God is the only one who can really meet your deepest need. And by putting anything else in his place, we exchange God's glory for another glory that we like to manage and control. And the Bible calls this, by definition, sin. It's the exchange of God's glory for another glory. Humans have then exchanged this truth about God for a lie. We serve and worship the creature rather than the creator, and that shows up in our self-autonomous sort of living. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to live by my own rules. And the effect of this is that even though we are creatures who owe our life, our existence to God, the effect is that we have corporately and individually rejected God, and as a result, every single human being ever born deserves nothing but swift, divine, and eternal judgment. The effects of this wholesale rejection of God's authority and its inculcation into the human race is that sin and brokenness is built into who we are. The problem that we have when we come to Romans 9 is we do not have a big enough appreciation for that internal brokenness or the problem of the rejection of God's glory. We are too familiar with our human brokenness, and so we too often diminish it in terms of its treachery and its danger, and we end up acting as though the injustice here is far less than what it really is in regards to God. Meaning this, God is not under obligation to save any human being, not one. And it is stunning and scandalous that he does. Most people, when they come to the issue of divine sovereignty, they ask this question. Why doesn't God save all of them? That's how we come to it. You know how I think the angels come to it? I think the angels look at us and say, why does he save any of them? And you know what the difference would be? The difference is your vantage point of who is really ultimate. We see ourselves through a lens, we see the universe through the lens, we see the problem of sin through the lens, we see God through a lens, and that lens is often far more predicated on a love of ourselves and our definition of justice and our understanding of freedom and the way that things should make sense to me. And the fact of the matter is, is that Paul's first answer to the charge of injustice is this. You don't know who you are dealing with. This is the creator of the universe who this very moment sustains the beating rhythm of your heart. This God who caused the sun to rise this morning, the God who creates air in the lungs that you breathe, the God who gives firing mechanisms in your brain for you even to process the information that I'm thinking, uh, that I'm saying to you, and everything in the world is held by the sovereign power of this God. Everything is dependent upon him, but the problem is, friends, is that we so often take that for granted and we fail to realize he's the creator and we're the creatures. It's easy to forget, isn't it? I forget it, I'm sure you do. I mean, we're the highest of all the created order. 
With all of our ingenuity, our self-determination, we create laws that govern our behavior, we create societies and social structures, we have systems that, that imply human understanding of fairness, and the problem is, is that we can forget we're not ultimate. We go on living our little normal human world and we forget that we are all dependent upon God. Then what happens is suffering comes into the mix and it shakes our understanding of our ultimate reality, that we can control our our own destiny. And then coming to terms with God's supremacy over all things and coming to terms with our frailty is humbling and traumatic and yet it's also, listen, it's also incredibly comforting. Comforting to know that Everything in the universe centers not on my ability to understand it all. Everything in the universe centers not on my ability to make it happen, but everything centers in the universe on God's ability to be God. And at the end of the day, the most comforting thought in the world could be God is God if we could just learn to trust him and release the need to say, God, you gotta explain this to me. And that, to me, has helped me immensely when it feels as though the bottom has dropped out of life. And that's why I think Romans 9 is so incredibly beautiful. It's a vision of God, I think, that is incredibly helpful and preserves followers of Jesus in suffering, in persecution, in hardship, and even as they think about their own conversion. So answer number one, God is God. Answer number two, God's purposes, or rather his purpose, is to show his glory through mercy. Verse 22 and 23. First answer, God is God. Second answer, his purpose is to show his glory through mercy. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? What Paul does here is the same thing he did in verses 15 through 18, and then in verses 15 to 18. He identifies that God's name is to be exalted, and then he identifies, and that's why Pharaoh was raised up, in order to show the beauty of God's name. He does the exact same thing in verses 22 and 23. The point of this passage is this. In order for mercy to be mercy, there has to be something that you're delivered from. Mercy means that you are not given what you deserve. And so in order for there to be mercy, there has to be something that you deserved. In other words, you can't have mercy without judgment. You can't have grace without penalty. Because mercy, by definition, means to not receive what is deserved. So without the possibility of judgment, mercy isn't mercy. And then, in order for mercy, secondly, to be glorious, and even more glorious, in order for God to make mercy seem incredibly attractive and to show it as for what it really is, it has to be seen in the context of potential and real judgment. And the reality of that judgment makes mercy even more attractive and more beautiful. Let me illustrate this. Imagine that you hear about a friend who has a major car accident 
and you hear that they are miraculously unhurt. Their, their car rolls, it's crushed, and yet they are unhurt. They walk away from the crash. You call your friend on the, uh, on the phone, you are so grateful that they were delivered from that car accident. You hear their voice, you're rejoicing. And then on Facebook or Instagram, they post a picture of the vehicle. And suddenly now, Although you've heard your friend's voice, although you have heard the news, when you see the picture of the vehicle from which they were delivered, it brings tears to your eyes because you see the extent of the destruction that could have been. And by seeing the destruction, it magnifies and multiplies the joy of the mercy that happened to that particular person. The main point of these two verses is the way in which God's mercy would be meaningless and the riches of his grace would be less stunning without the reality of judgment. I mean, we, li we live in a world, post-Christian culture, post-modern, the idea of anyone being held accountable for their sins, the idea of judgment or God being against anything is just completely foreign. And the problem is, is that people don't realize is you can't have mercy and grace without judgment. It doesn't work, you, you, can't, you can't uncouple them. In fact, what are we celebrating this Friday? We're celebrating Good Friday, and if you wanna see the most unbelievable example of the merger of judgment and mercy, then just come on Good Friday and remember what happened on that day, because if you're there on Good Friday, it's not good. All you see is judgment. All you see is Christ being excluded from the presence of the Father. All you see is death, and yet that Judgment resulted in the beautiful display of mercy. We, we hang around our necks and we use the symbol of the cross. A, a, a tool of execution became the tool of deliverance. And in God's wonderful and gracious plan, we see that he aims to make his mercy known by including judgment into the equation. Again, mercy can't be mercy unless there is judgment. So what Paul says in verses 22 to 23 is not new. Mercy and judgment are more closely linked than we often realize, and I don't think that we often see the magnification of mercy as a justification for judgment, but that is what the text is saying. So God's aim is to make his mercy gloriously known. And not having any judgment would not accomplish that plan. So when the text says in verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, what's he saying? He's saying that there are people in the world that are born that are not saved. There are people who are born that God chooses not to save. As I read this text and as I look at the world and I think about how we pray, it seems pretty apparent. Not everyone who is a human being is a follower of Jesus. And I know that that creates a lot of tension. Some of you just do not like that I even just said that. But remember, 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 that no one deserves God's mercy. No one, and it's remarkable that he pours it out on anyone, and if you start from the perspective of the angels, as I illustrated before, it's remarkable that he saves any of them. It changes how you see Romans chapter nine. How does this help us? 
with the question, why does he still find fault? It helps us by reminding us of two things. Number one, the ultimate goal in the universe is the display of God's mercy, not your or my definition of fairness or unfairness with all of the implicating questions that are connected to that. And secondly, no one, no one, no one deserves mercy. Our definition of what is fair is off. Fair is no single human being ever being delivered from their willful rebellion, none of us. And the fact that God saves any is a stunning display of his grace. Third, the third answer is this. This is the way that God has always worked. So it's not like God is saying something new through Paul in Romans 9. And in order to verify that, Paul quotes two, rather four, Old Testament passages. Two about Gentiles and two about Jews. Look at verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also, not from the Jews only, rather, but also from the Gentiles. So he's focusing now on the fact that there are Jews and Gentiles being called into God's family. But there are, it's happening in a different way. Look at verse 25. He quotes the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet in the 8th century to the northern kingdom. God commanded that Hosea marry an unfaithful woman, and then he was to name his second child, No Mercy, and he was to name his third child, Not My People, and it was to be a symbolic um, representation of God's rejection of his people as mitigated through the life of Hosea. However, God promises to reverse course, and the text that Paul cites communicates God's mercy to people who didn't deserve it. Look at Romans 9, 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place that it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. What's he saying? He's using Hosea as an illustration of the way in which God has now dealt with the Gentiles. Because prior to the coming of Christ, the Gentiles were considered outcasts. They were not part of the people of God. And now Paul is applying this text to the kindness of God and opening the floodgates to the people of the Gentiles. The Jews would have never, ever, ever dreamed that Gentiles would be welcomed into God's family. They were to be judged. They were the outclass. They were unclean. And now God has worked in unexpected and surprising ways in opening the floodgates to Gentiles in order that they might become part of God's family. It is a stunning display of undeserved mercy. That's the point. Secondly, he quotes Isaiah about the inclusion of a remnant from disobedient Israel. So the idea is the floodgates are wide open for the Gentiles, but when it comes to the Jews at the present time, there is only a remnant who will be saved from the disobedient people. Romans 9, 27 says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. So what's he saying here? 
The contrast is that while the Gentiles were considered outcasts and now they're welcomed in, here we have God's grace to a people who have rejected him and he has hardened them and yet there's a remnant of people who are still are going to be saved even in the midst of their severe discipline in the context of Isaiah at the hands of the Assyrian nation, God will still miraculously preserve a remnant of people so that the people of Israel do not become like Sodom and Gomorrah, a place of utter and total devastation. God is going to preserve his people even while they have already rejected him. So what is Paul saying here? He is using the Old Testament in order to show a beautiful vision of God's grace and how it has worked historically. The Gentiles were welcomed into God's people despite the fact that they were historically considered outcasts and the people of Israel were welcomed into God's people by virtue of a remnant that even though they had rejected God, he still was faithful to them that his plan for them was not over. It's important for two kinds of people. There are some of you who when you think of what it means to have a relationship with your God through Jesus Christ, you despair because of what your past has been like and in your mind you think, Mark, if you knew what I did, there is no way I can be forgiven. There's no way I can be cleansed. My past is so bad, it's so horrific, it's so horrible. And the problem that you have is that you think your despair over your sin is greater than God's grace and its ability to conquer that issue. And there is nothing you could ever do or who, what you've ever been that God can't by his grace conquer, forgive, cleanse, and welcome you into his family. So you ought never despair you ought always come, that's the point. Don't, don't you dare elevate your past like it's ultimate. Your past isn't ultimate, God is. That's the point of the gospel. And on the other side, the warning here is to those of us who grew up in Christian homes with religious pedigrees and you know the things of the Bible and all the religious lingo and you've grown up having devotions and, and hearing lots of sermons and you could really begin to think you're gonna rest on your spiritual heritage because you know all of the truth, you've experienced all the truth, you're part of the family of God when the reality is, like Israel, many people who hear the message of Christ don't actually receive Christ and so the caution here is is this, don't you dare rest on your privilege or elevate your historical Christianity to a level to think you don't need to repent and come to Jesus too. On the one hand, don't you elevate your past too highly. On the other, don't you elevate your family lineage too highly. Everyone needs to come to faith in Christ, whether you're an outcast or whether you've been privileged. That's the point. Putting these answers together, we get a clear picture of Paul's perspective on this charge that, well, why does he still find fault? And the answer is, remember, God is God. Get the creature creator thing right. Secondly, the display of God's mercy and its linkage to judgment, that is part of God's aim. And third, this is the way that God has always worked, welcoming people in surprising ways, regardless of their background. So you see what Romans 9 is meant to do is it's meant to give us hope in God's promises because the beginning, the middle, and the end are dependent not on us, but on him. I mean, do you think you can live the rest of your life and be faithful to Jesus? 
What, what is your, what's your hope in the middle of, let's just say persecution comes and, and you're begun to, to, to ask the question, people begin to ask the question to you, will you renounce your faith in Christ? What keeps your mouth open and naming the name of Jesus and saying, I have no king but Jesus, I have no king but Jesus. Is your trust gonna rest in you? Are you gonna trust in your ability to be faithful? Because I look back on my 44 years, that's not a good bet at all. My only hope is that God will preserve my heart all the way to the end, and that if I belong to him, nothing, nobody, not even me, can take him out of my heart or remove me from his hand. The, 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 the hymn writer Robert Robinson said this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. He says this, take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Notice that. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. What is he asking for? He's asking for God to preserve and protect him all the way to the end. Finally, let me give you just a few closing thoughts on this chapter. Continue on after Easter in Romans 10 and 11. What does this chapter tell us about our thinking, our feeling, our praying, and our living? Here's just some things, some questions that you've asked. First, in regards to our thinking. Romans 9 pushes the envelope on our mental abilities and it challenges presuppositions about how the world really works. It reminds us that there is a great difference between God's ways and our ways. And the difference between who God is and who we are is probably far greater than what we have ever realized. And this chapter gives us a painfully, gloriously elevated view of who God is. It's both painful, lots of challenges, and yet it's glorious. At one moment you're going, what? And another moment you're going, wow. Are there questions unanswered and implications unsolved? Yes, absolutely. But if I have to err, if you have to err, I would encourage you to err on the side of God's sovereignty. And I hope that Romans 9 has given you a bigger view of God than what you had three to four weeks ago. That's thinking, feeling. Remember, everything in Romans 9 is meant to comfort us in the way that God keeps his promises. Sometimes this chapter, with all of its tensions, didn't, didn't feel all that comforting, did it? And yet there is something more comforting here, I think, than we even really know. This passage points us to the beauty of who God is, the beauty of his glory, and the magnification of his name as the ultimate reason for everything. In other words, the comfort here in divine sovereignty is that we can trust God, not have to try and make sense of everything. And some of you, that's what you need to let go of. As it relates to your past, the things that have happened to you, as it relates to Romans 9, you're just struggling because it's like, I gotta make sense of this, I gotta make sense, gotta make sense, gotta make sense. And eventually, in all of that really good striving, there comes a point when you simply have to say, God, I don't understand all of this, but I trust that you are a good and kind God and have purposes beyond what I could possibly dream. And so I'm just gonna trust that you are on your throne. Third, praying, thinking, feeling, praying. This text, dear church, should not discourage prayer in your life. 
You ought not walk away from this section unmotivated to pray for loved ones who do not know Jesus as their savior. Divine sovereignty is not at odds with the call for passionate God-seeking prayer. Prayer ought to be offered that God, would you open a door? God, would you open their heart? Pray passionately if you have a loved one that doesn't know Christ, that God would destroy the things that your loved one is trusting in. Pray that God would captivate his or her heart. Even if you disagree with my my treatment of Romans 9, if you think there's more human agency involved, my push on you would be this, that even you, when you pray, you still pray like I'm interpreting Romans 9. When you pray for your loved one, you say things like this, God, would you please open? God, would you please work in there? God, would you please change all of us at one level know that there's a gap between what that person can do and what we can do, and God has to fill in that gap, and that ought to motivate you to new levels to pray for, for prodigal sons and daughters, and you ought to say, God, would you break down every stronghold? Would you open their eyes? And this passage ought to embolden you to pray, not discourage you in your prayer. The essence of prayer is asking God to do what cannot be done without him, and dear church, there is a bunch of stuff in life that will never happen unless God moves, and we ought to pray that he does. Finally, thinking, feeling, praying, living. A right understanding of Romans 9 should never, ever, ever decrease your passion for evangelism as if your proclaiming the gospel doesn't matter. If that's your conclusion, you have not understood Romans 9, and you do not understand the gospel in all of its beauty. On the contrary, Romans 9 should embolden you because it means that you are cooperating with God's activity and the success of your evangelism does not depend on your ability to share the gospel perfectly. A couple weeks ago, I was sharing the gospel with someone out in the parking lot, and as I began to share it, it wasn't going well. It was, it was a very poor presentation, and I'm starting to panic inside, going, I'm messing this up. And I had to remind myself of my theological moorings and say, no, God, I need you to help me right now. And the Lord helped me, and even in his help, it's still at the end of the day, is up to him to take my words and to plant them in the right soil. And that should free you to be a bold witness, not make you cower and hide behind Romans 9 as if sharing the gospel doesn't matter. You ought to be bold in your witness. This chapter should never cause you to resist coming to faith in Christ. You ought never wonder, am I chosen? Has God elected me? Has he set his love on me? You ought never wonder that. You ought to come to faith in Jesus. You ought never to wonder if your struggle with sin as a follower of Jesus means somehow that God has either removed his love or hasn't set his love on you in the first place because this, anyone who thinks the thought, has God loved me, has he set his affection on me, is already in the stream of God's calling people to faith in Jesus Christ. And so you ought to come and you ought to repent and you ought to turn and you ought to do that today and nothing in this chapter should ever hinder you from making that full Beautiful move to come to faith in Jesus. The beauty of all of this, the beauty of God's sovereignty is that underneath everything in your life, everything in my life, underneath all of it, both the blessings and the bruisings is the undeserved grace of God that is working out an eternal plan for our good, and for God's glory. Underneath everything is that plan, and therefore our life can be built around this mantra, I'm gonna keep trusting the one who keeps me 
trusting. I'm going to keep trusting you because you can keep me trusting. And that's the hope and that's the beauty of this passage. Father in heaven, we pray now you would seal these truths in our hearts with all of the implications that are not yet resolved, all the tension points not even fully understood. We bend the knee at the beauty of who you are as our creator and who you are as our God. I pray for people today who who you're calling to become a part of your family and I pray that today they would hear and sense that call and might turn from their sins and cry out to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my savior. I want you to take over. I'm done with me. I'm tired of the exchange of glory and I want you, so come be my king. And for believers who need today, Father, to turn from sins that are the remnants of the exchange of glory, help us to passionately pursue godliness And thank you that you're the one who is our security as we look towards an uncertain future in our lives. We rest on your ability to keep us trusting. We bow in humble acknowledgement of the fact that you are God and we are not. Thank you for the beauty and thank you for the meaning of that reality. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.